This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Many assume that attorneys in firms and those in nonprofit legal services all speak the same language and share a common lawyer culture. But the daily reality of working in a law firm versus working in legal services? Very different experiences. When lawyers have widely different experiences and expectations, how do they come together to work well on a pro bono case? How do they bridge the gaps to get the best results for clients in crisis situations? Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. When farm lawyers and nonprofit lawyers work in different subcultures, it can be tricky for them to connect well as co-counsel on a case. To find out how nonprofit lawyers and firm lawyers connect with each other, I met with three attorneys who have spent a lot of time developing and supporting productive relationships between lawyers. The secret to strong connections may be in the hard work of a third group, pro bono professionals. Thank you so much for sitting down with uh, us. Why don't we get started by having each of you just say who you are and what do you do? Thank you for having me here. I'm Brenna Devaney. I'm pro bono counsel and director of pro bono programs at Skadden. I sit in Chicago and I spend a lot of time in New York. Hi, I'm Annie Panetta. I'm director of pro bono at the Bronx Defenders, which is a holistic public defender located in the South Bronx. I'm Jennifer Croman, and I'm the director of the pro bono practice at Cleary Gottlieb, and I sit in New York. So when I reached out about this interview, you all were very clear that you wanted to sit down together. So tell me about your history of working together. In my role at the Bronx Defenders, I oversee our pro bono practice and partner with law firms in all sorts of cases. And actually, I would say our friendships kind of happened organically and through working together and just through all these years, a friendship has grown. I think one of the other things that makes um, our friendship and our partnerships happen is the unique places that we sit in our respective organizations. So um, while I work at a firm with thousands of lawyers, there's a very small group of us who do what I do. And that's the same, I think, for Annie in her organization, where she works with lawyers who are public interest lawyers doing that work. But her job is unique in that it's to, to be connected to the law firms. I think the other thing is one interesting thing about being a pro bono professional, whether you're at a law firm or you're at a legal services organization, is there's the profession of doing the pro bonoing, right? There's like best practices and professionalism around that, right? What's the best way to screen a case or place a case or a co-counsel agreement or expenses? But then there's, of course, substantive law happening in tandem with that. So, you know, it's there's programming designed towards the professionalism of doing pro bono. 
What do you think motivates individual lawyers to actually sign up and show up and do pro bono? This is Brenna. The answer is almost always the same, that it makes people feel good about being a lawyer. But what we have to sometimes focus on more is what stops people from doing the work rather than what what will feel good once they start doing it. I think we have to ask the question, what is the additional value in a law firm? Because the context is very, very um, particular. What does the firm say about the culture around pro bono at the firm? Do the hours count? You know, um, those sorts of things matter to people as well. And other things come come into play, like I, this will help me develop a relationship with a partner who I want to work with. And then there's just, I'm passionate about an issue. And I think we spend a lot of time in our jobs matching up people who have an issue they are passionate about with a real need. And I, I take that very, very seriously. And we learn about what the need is by asking someone like Annie, where should we direct our energy? I think this is Annie. What's interesting about that is, I will say I find it an intellectually interesting part of my job, but it is a challenging part of my job, right? Like how to make sure that my pro bono program is in alignment with the work that Bronx Defenders does. There's been an enormous growth of what's happening on the law firm side, but it's in very particular areas. And we represent people that are in absolutely devastating circumstances, right? I mean, people who are poor, people who have criminal cases, people who have family cases, they're non-citizens, they're homeless. And it's been very hard to engage pro bono attorneys on a lot of those cases. Coming from legal services myself, I'm, I'm definitely familiar with the legal aid warrior firm lawyer divide. But how do we, how do we build those relationships between the frontline nonprofit lawyers and the frontline firm lawyers to co-counsel cases together? I don't think there's actually one answer to that. Some of it is actually just building, making sure that some of these personal relationships that I have the privilege and opportunity to develop with pro bono counsel don't just live and die with me, right? That my colleagues are getting to meet Jen or Brenna, and not just them, but their lawyers, right? Because what is true, and I've seen it over and over again, is if one of my colleagues works on an immigration case with a team from Cleary and they have a great experience and they see that Jen's lawyers are really in the trenches, really committed, doing all the things, right? Going to the client's house, making sure that they're putting on the absolute best defense possible. That's a game changer, Mm -hmm. right? Then they come back and they're like, this was unbelievable. They were totally in it with me. They get it. They see it. It is a challenge and it's a constant one. Something you said actually struck me that, um, because I do think it's the same in, uh, in legal services as it is in the firm, that you have to get a message from the top down that this is valued. The opportunity to learn to mentor and supervise yes. is something that we can sell to legal services attorneys as a reason to co-counsel. And it's not just that. I mean, it could be the smallest thing. I kid you not. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day about co-counseling a trial, and she was ex- like expressing a lot of anxiety and reluctance about it. It just seems stressful to her, right? And I was like, "Look, there, there's support you're going to get that you actually can't even imagine." Like when we did a when we did this case in family court with this firm, the firm put together all the trial binders. And the trial binders were sent to our lawyers at home and in the office. And and they were beautiful. And they're still, t- I kid you not, our lawyers on that case are still talking about how trial magical <laughs> trial binders followed them wherever they went. And if you, are a, if you are a public defender, those things are so stressful. 
just all the stuff you're carrying all the time and like making sure you have it and just where are you finding the time to put together your trial binder? And I said that to this person about the trial binders and she was like, they will help me with my trial binders. And sometimes it is those like very simple things to say there is there is value. And I really do believe that once you have one good, successful collaboration, even in the smallest way, it just changes people's minds. Like it really does. There's no substitute for it. This is Brenna. I agree very strongly with Annie about the relationships mattering. Um, I would also add that the lawyers at law firms who do pro bono for the most part don't have to do that work, right? And so if there could be more understanding around the fact that, that these are volunteers who are doing this because they want to, because they really want to do something good. The development of the pro bono profession or the pro bono professional, I think, has made a tremendous change in positive relationships between many legal services organizations and law firms because Annie knows who to call when there's any sort of problem. And she knows that I want to know when it's a little problem before it gets to a big problem. She knows that I'm not going to react in a defensive way, that we're going to be able to get through whatever it is, that if, you know, that I will bring more resources to the table if that's not necessary, or I will help the lawyer who's at the law firm to get what he or she needs to get the work done. And there's actually a skill set that we have in our profession now, whether we sit at a law firm or at a legal services organization, about how to be sort of translators or interpreters of the two different cultures so that we can help those relationships amongst the staff attorneys and the associates go better. This is Jennifer. I would just add two points. One is that I think the divide between legal services lawyers and firm lawyers has really decreased from when I went to law school in the mid-90s. And I think the reason for that is the rise of clinical programs. Mm -hmm. Most of the people coming to Cleary now, they're certainly not public defenders. Almost everyone has been in family court or immigration court or housing court by virtue of the fact that they've spent at least one semester in an intensive clinical program. Jen, I think that's right. You know, I'm teaching at two law schools, and I talk with these students who take this class who want to go to law firms but still deeply care about being able to do public interest work in some form. And it, they talk about how their law school classes divide up, never to come together again, and that there are real feelings about who's made what choice. And I, I wish that there were even more being done at the law school level level to try to bring those communities back together to think through how they can help each other. It used to be highly unusual when I was an associate at my firm for someone to leave, maybe not to go do impact litigation at the ACLU, but to be a line lawyer doing housing at MFJ in New York would be highly unusual. And part of it is New York may be a little differently situated because of a lot of, lot of city council funding into certain areas where a lot of legal services organizations were hiring at the same time. Can I just, this is Annie, can I just add on? I think you're right about that. And, and I would take it a step further. A lot of times when one of our attorneys is working with a law firm attorney, the law firm attorney will reference their clinical experience as something that like, you know, as they're toiling away in their law firm jobs, especially when they're very junior, not that meaningful or substantive and really hard on them. They're thinking about how impactful they felt in their law school clinic, whatever that clinic was, or the client who thanked them so much. And though they may have chosen to go the corporate route, there's something 
that gives them the confidence to do a pro bono case when they wouldn't have otherwise done it, or they just feel like they need an infusion of feeling like a lawyer. The clinical um, experience has been key. This is so interesting in terms of figuring out how do you convert someone from thinking about pro bono to doing it, asking them, what kind of clinic did you do? We do ask that. So when our summer associates and our associates start at the firm, we send them a survey. And part of the survey is not only what are you interested in doing, but what experiences have you had that would be relevant to us thinking about what would be a good fit for you, including what clinical classes have you taken. And often they want to continue the work that they're doing, or they say, I've done a housing clinic and now I want to do X. So I was a partner at Cleary before I took on this role. And in my, I always say one of the most helpful things for me in making partner was a big pro bono case that I did that gave me a lot of experience um, in doing a trial very early on before then judge, now Justice Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact the case generated a lot of press. So I think when we were coming up, you didn't have a professional development a, a group. Mm-hmm. You scrapped around to find what you could grab and did as much as you could. And now that's not true. And as associates are going through their checklists of sort of their benchmarks for what they should be doing when, pro bono can really be useful in that, but it's more useful for certain practice groups, I think, than others, or is perceived as more useful for certain practice areas than others. You said, Annie, that you think it just takes one good experience to cement somebody or change their feelings. I used to get nervous that one bad experience would be something we could never recover from. So what what do you all think about how we can best handle when there is a catastrophe in a case. This is Annie. I mean, I think there are answers that are very specific to the fact that I work at a very large organization in New York City, that Brenna and Jen are at very large firms, um, that they have the title of pro bono counsel, that I am director of pro bono. So there's resources available to us when catastrophe strikes. But a lot of other organizations and and smaller firms don't necessarily have that. Problems come up pretty regularly if you are if you are tasked with managing a pro bono program, because it's not a natural fit, right? It's not, and every firm is different and every organization is different and how and how they're coming together in a, di- in a given case and every case is different. There are just hi- a lot of hiccups along the way. But when we're thinking about the catastrophes, we're really thinking when the, ins- when the client's at risk and serious risk, mm-hmm. Um, when the attorneys or advocates involved in the case are potentially at risk, and when the entire institutional relationship could crumble because of what's happened. The first starting point is the fact of having a very direct conversation with with each other, right? Like with your peer, pro bono counsel, pro bono director, whoever it is you're working with about what is happening. And frankly, conveying the gravity of the situation from your perspective, as opposed to, I think, a natural tendency, I feel like I certainly have to kind of minimize, right? And be like, it's fine, right? But to really actually convey what's happening and why it's serious, not necessarily in a critical sense, it might be your fault, but just relaying that you understand that this is really important and starting there. Honestly, I would bring in the general counsel, even if it's not so clearly that there's an ethical violation or like even if it doesn't feel squarely in the general counsel domain. 
no matter the size of the firm or the organization or where you live or sit, if you have good relationships with the people that you are working with, generally speaking, I think you can get through things. If you can't talk about the problem and care about each other's thoughts about it, it, it goes nowhere. So this is Jennifer. One of the things I think hitting on the point that Brenna made about us being professionals is not every case is a good pro bono fit. I think people starting out who aren't doing this all the time might just be placing cases without giving a lot of thought to whether it's a good pro bono case. What's the relationship? Is it co-counsel? Are you just referring it? I think the one thing I take really a lot of comfort in is that everyone is putting the client first. There is universal agreement among people who are committed to doing pro bono that the client comes first. We may not agree in the moment on how to put the client first, but we're all coming from that perspective. I think that's right. And you're reminding me about preventative care. And so, you know, it requires, no matter what the size of your organization is, for you to make the time and space, headspace, to sit down and think about what are all the things that could go wrong? And which of these things can I sort of process map and plug some holes around so that I won't have those sim simpler mistakes. And those are things like using calendaring tools so you don't miss deadlines or having a really good conversation with whoever does your filing so that you know that that's done well and that they're up to date on procedures. What is Talking to even people in your mailroom to make sure that really critical deadline information gets to the right lawyers. And those things can be very, very not easily, but they can be systematized. And then you, you pull out some of the risk from doing pro bono. But things still happen because such is life. But what are you doing after that happens to say, okay, well, now I know that this is how we deal with mail in our mailroom. And so I'm going to be really sure on when we file this thing that I'm flagging for the mailroom that they're, you know, that this is what they have to do or whatever it is. And to really be very upfront and direct with your own institution, recognizing the significance of the event that happens. What are the systems in place that you're now creating to make sure it doesn't happen again and saying, but look, look, this firm has been a terrific partner. I'm so struck by what you're talking about, about preventative care. I mean, I think it's, we say that in everything, right? If you're, you're less likely to have a trial, if you're prepared for trial, you're, um, you know, you should always be planning to avoid the worst. So for small firms, like three or four lawyers or 10 or 15 lawyers, they don't have a pro bono counsel. They don't have the resources to have that. But is there a way and maybe you already do this, for um, ABCO members to mentor those smaller firms? Like if they were to call you and say, we want to start doing more pro bono, but we're worried about what could go wrong, what are the, some of the systemic solutions you've put in place that we might be able to adapt in our small place? Does that happen now? Is there room for that? This is Brenna. One thing I would say about our ABCO, Association of Pro Bono Council Community, is that we are sort of the connective, non-competitive tissue between and among law firms. And there is such a deep willingness and happiness about sharing information that I cannot imagine a situation where a lawyer at a law firm of any size would call any, any one of our 240 people and say, uh, you know, I need some help. Can I have some help? Will you make some time for that? There, there's not a situation where that person would say no, right? Um, 
that's good. That's a good resource. But I think for smaller practitioner, smaller law firm practitioners, it's a good idea to work with a bar association or another entity that has some supportive um, resources around doing pro bono in a safe and responsible way. I think a you know a similar situation is in-house legal departments now are doing quite a bit more yes. pro bono work, and there are only a couple of them that have a pro bono professional on staff. I think that we may see a trend in that direction. We don't just want more people doing pro bono. We want people doing pro bono well. That is a phenomenal place to land. Thank you <laughs> so much. With our sincere thanks to Brenna Devaney from Skadden, Annie Pineda of the Bronx Defenders, and Jennifer Croman at Cleary Gottlieb, this has been a special interview about the challenges facing organizations in developing pro bono co-counseling relationships. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers helping those with limited access to justice. We also thank our production team, including Daniel Pinitz, Janet Siegel, J.C. Kinneman, and Robert Gennerke, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative legal training and continuing education. Since its founding more than 80 years ago, PLI has served the pro bono and public interest community. Lawyers working to expand access to justice can apply for complimentary access to attend PLI events or to watch any one of the 2,500 on-demand programs available on pli.edu. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.